0: I'm a glutton for gluten. Seriously, I'll just go ahead and say it. I- I'm really not ashamed. In fact, my husband and I, for our, one of our wedding gifts, which was a few years back, but anyway, uh, we ha- got a bread machine, and I had not used it in several years. One, because I'm really bad at following directions, and so I couldn't figure out how to use it. But anyway, he gets it out of the pantry, and he says, Listen, if you're not going to use this, I'm, just, I'm throwing this bread machine out. It's like uh, last year when he threatened to throw out my tomatoes if I didn't can them because they'd been sitting there too long. Anyway, I used the bread machine uh, the first time, and it, it turned out okay. And then I used it the second time and got the right flour to use. I actually got bread flour. And oh my gosh, I'm pretty sure now I have even more of a love for bread. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, is there anything better than a warm piece of bread fresh out of the oven or out of the bread machine topped with butter just dripping over the sides? I'm pretty sure the answer is no. But here's the reality. Domestic wheat consumption is on the decline. I mean, in the U.S., we consume more wheat than we did in years like 1960, but not as much as we did in a year like 2013. That was really our peak of wheat consumption in the U.S. And wheat, I mean, it's seriously, it's just getting a bad rap. Part of that is people who suffer from celiac disease, which is serious, and some reports show it's, it's really common, more than 200,000 cases per year, but it does require a medical diagnosis, not self-diagnosis. And so I hear from more and more people, even friends, who have tried to self-diagnose the issue instead of finding out what's the root cause of bloating or other symptoms you're facing. And I've been, even talked to a couple friends that thought they had celiac, went in and found out that wasn't the issue. But it's kind of like we talked about with Leah in an earlier podcast, the anti-gluten crowd or really anti-anything crowd who do it for non-medical reasons. Just jump on the bandwagon and then food shame others. I'm telling you, that is not cool. So today we're going to meet the real deal. A grain farmer who raises livestock. I mean, she's bucking hay bales on the daily. She was doing that when I called her. Raising two active little boys while stepping up to the plate as the first female president of montana grain growers association i'm telling you she's impressive so today i'm going to introduce you to michelle jones a montana farmer who is a wheat whisperer i'm pretty sure raising those iconic amber waves of grain on the plains welcome to no man's land a podcast shining light on women in agriculture while empowering all women in agriculture going where no man has gone before Well, welcome to No Man's Land. A treat this week because we're going to get a taste of what it's like to farm out west with a female farmer who has made a pretty good name for herself in the uh, short stint that she's been back on the family farm. So I want to welcome to the show Michelle Jones. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm pretty excited. I'm excited. Tell me a little bit about where you're from, what you farm. Just give us a taste of what life is like Michelle Jones?
1: Well, I farm with my dad and my husband, and as well as our two little boys. And we farm just north of Billings, Montana. It's, uh, south-central Montana is the general geography. And we raise wheat, malt barley, sunflower, safflower, corn, um, quite a bit of alfalfa, as well as some forage grains. And we have a small cow cough operation.
0: So, I mean, I'm picturing in my head, right, what it's like where you are right now. And what your what your view is and is it just uh wheat upon wheat upon wheat I mean is that what you're looking at
1: um it for a lot of cases yeah we actually are in a pretty diversified area that we've had some markets open up and we've gotten to diversify our crops and so so we have gone from wheat upon wheat upon wheat to there's chickpeas across the road mm-hmm. and right next to us is an alfalfa field and right here next to our house we actually have hay barley peas forage mix and so there's, there's certainly far more diversification even than there was um, 10 years ago.
0: Is that because of wheat prices or really what's driven that diversity?
1: I would say a little bit more um, market factors, not necessarily wheat prices, but some of those oilseed markets have moved closer to home and crop genetics have allowed crops such as corn to be um, raised here and the rise of uh, microbreweries have increased malt barley acres. And it just led to a lot of diversification, and we found that we do really well with some of these diversified rotations, and it really enhances our wheat crop, and it also allows us to diversify risk. Um, Mm -hmm. We can't, you know, entirely take risk out, and there's still some risk of being this diversified, but typically you're not going to lose every single one of those crops. You might have one that struggles because of weather, what have you, but we typically don't lose every one of them. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that kind of enhanced it.
0: Speaking of risk, speaking of weather, how's it been this year for you in Montana? I mean, how does the crop look right now?
1: This year has actually been an, an, an incredible year. Um, we have some really great looking crops. We are, I don't think it's the wettest year on record, but we have gotten more rain and snow than our average year total. Total annual average precipitation is 13.66 inches in this area, and we're about 14 and a half right now. Uh, we had a record-setting winter, the most snow we've ever had, a really long winter. And there's obviously some issues with the wet year. I had some preventative plant sunflowers. I don't have any sunflowers, which is really disappointing to me. Um, but other than that, the rest of our crops, our hay is tremendous. Our wheat so far looks pretty good. Um,
0: so it's been it's been
1: a year that is one to be enjoyed because we certainly have more dry years than we have wet years.
0: Well, Michelle, that's refreshing to hear because that's not the case everywhere. I mean, if you turn on the U.S. Farm Report, I'm talking, I think, every week about the drought and the dryness, including this weekend on the show, um, you know, looking at the wheat crop in Oklahoma. So not everyone has enjoyed moisture, and we've seen some areas enjoy too much. But kind of what are your expectations? I know you'll harvest in about a month, but once you get in that combine, what are you hoping to see with yields? What is What's realistic for you right now?
1: Average for us is around forty, and with this crop, we're obviously hoping to be above that. You think you
0: Um, will be above it?
1: I I expect to be on most fields. Um, We actually had really randomly we had a frost. I don't a week and a half ago or something like that. Just just recently. Yeah, just recently, uh, it was what we call a dry Canadian cold front, (laughs) and for the most part, the wheat looks like it escaped some damage. But Mm -hmm. there's you know there's always a little bit of residual concern in the back of our heads that. You know, the kernels that we expect to be there won't be there right. because of that frost hitting at the wrong time. But I I expect I still expect a, a very good, good crop out of this area.
0: Well, not only do you farm, um, but I think what I appreciate about you is you're not afraid to step up to the plate. And as a female, take on some leadership roles that we need to see pursued more in, in agriculture. And so you're the first female president of the Montana Grain Growers Association. And when did you take on this role? What year were you elected to that position?
1: Um, I was officially elected in December. The way the Montana Grain Growers Association works is we start our officers at the secretary position and we work our way up all the way through uh, past president. So it's a five year, five year rotation. And we officially get elected every year. But, you know, typically it's just a you, you just know, it's an up. approval. Yeah. Um, Moving up to the next level, so I've been the president since December, and it's it's been a great experience. It's working in policy is can be really frustrating at times, but it's definitely something that I that I really enjoy, really like, and is really important to farmers.
0: What's the biggest challenge for you right now when it comes to policy? What's the biggest obstacle that you're trying to overcome as president of Montana Green Growers Association?
1: Uh, This year, a lot of our focus has obviously been on trade. Um, You know, a lot of the rhetoric around the trade war and tariffs and the impacts of that and the impacts of our trade policy, uh, renegotiating NAFTA, withdrawing from the TVP, you know, those are those are big issues for the wheat industry. And it's kind of interesting to see how prevalent trade becomes that we're in a farm bill year and farm bill to a lot of people involved in policy work in agriculture is sitting second to trade, which is something that I mean, you never see that
0: yeah, I was when I was in DC a couple weeks ago and talking to um, Congressman Colin Peterson. that's what he said He goes, "Time, I'm not even hearing really from farmers about the farm bill right now because they're so concerned about other things like trade. But the reality is, Michelle, we have farm bill discussions going on. We still need to see if we're going to have a 2018 farm bill this year, if we're going to see an extension. But as a wheat producer, what do you want in the farm bill? What is the biggest key uh, for the 2018 farm bill when it comes to your your operation?
1: our operation and and really the weed industry uh, nationwide is always going to be crop insurance. It's our number one risk management tool. It's it's the most important thing we have that allows us to um, stay in business every year. Certainly most every year, we don't want to use our crop insurance. We want to just pay the premium and have a good year and move on with life. But as we all know that mother nature doesn't always allow that to happen. And crop insurance is a vital safety net for us and really anyone in agri- uh, production agriculture for the commodity crops um, really needs to be successful.
0: Michelle, what's your hope with trade? And, you know, I talk to a lot of producers that just, I mean, you know, farmers are eternal optimists. So even as you see, you know, the, the, the grain prices fall and you see the pressures put on from things like these these tariff disputes, Um, it's like farmers just remain optimistic that we'll come out better in the end. And I've been to the White House and they say, I want farmers to know we will come out better in the end. We're fighting for you. What's your position? Do you want to see this administration take a tougher stance on tariffs? Um, Or in a year where we're already seeing pressured prices, uh, do you just want to see that talk disappear? Uh, I definitely want to see the
1: talk about tariffs disappear. (laughs) I'm certainly a free trader um, when it comes to policy and you know my policy positions i i certainly would like to see uh enforcement especially in regards to china um for some of their trade distorting acts but i've long held the position that there are better ways to do it um that are multilateral that involve the wto and bringing um dispute cases through through the wto as is, is you know as slow and cumbersome as that can be that's mm-hmm. We pref- I prefer that as a route as opposed to unilateral tariffs and uh, some of the current current policy, um, trade policy routes we're pursuing that really make us judge, jury, and executioner um, and put agriculture in harm's way.
0: Well, I know not only are our tariffs and trade and, and, and farm bill top of mind for you, but more than just president of a Montana Great Growers Association, more than just a Montana farmer, You're also a wife, you're a mom, you wear a lot of different hats. Tell me a little bit about your family. So I
1: got married in 2014 to a local rancher, and we have two little boys. Uh, Will is two and a half, and Tate is about 15 months. They're almost exactly 17 months apart. And we farm with my dad. Uh, I'm a fourth-generation farmer. My husband, Travis, is a fourth-generation rancher. And his parents are also involved on his ranch, and so we have you know definitely a that definition of a family farm and a uh, family operation
0: how did How did you two meet? Well, we've actually
1: known each other our entire lives um but you didn't date before this He's two years older than me
0: but you didn't you didn't date until until uh, right before you guys got married
1: right yeah i we didn't date at all. Um, we actually didn't even really hang out that much. I ended up going to a different <laughs> high school than the local small school. And then I went to college in Ohio and worked for UPS and Amazon. And so I was in Seattle for a while. And then when I came back, we, we started dating and uh, the rest is history. So, yeah, it, it definitely was a little little strange.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you have two sons. How old are they? Uh, they're two and a half
1: and uh, 15 months. They're... Almost oh, they're exactly 17 months apart.
0: Oh my gosh. I have two girls that are 15 months apart and I don't know about you, but on a daily basis, it just sometimes feel like feels like you're in survival mode. Like it's crazy. I can't imagine. What is oh. it like with two boys that are 17 months apart? Is it just chaotic?
1: Yeah, it's just chaos. We're, we're really lucky right now. My sister who she's getting a graduate degree um, in sports management, but she's home for the summer and she's been, she's been our nanny and house cleaner for the last month and she actually leaves to go back to school right after the Fourth of July, and I'm I'm already dreading it. My house won't be clean anymore. And are you even going to let her leave? <laughs> if it was an option, I wouldn't.
0: <laughs> but I mean, I know that you're a family operation, so the boys. I mean, I can only imagine that they love being on the farm with mom and dad.
1: Oh, they do. They're they're definitely farm boys through and through. They you know they stop when get excited whenever a sprayer tractor comes in the yard and I was just moving bales uh, not far from our house and my husband had to bring our oldest over so he could watch bales be moved and wave high and yeah they're definitely very much so uh, your your average farm kid that <laughs> loves their tractors.
0: <laughs> well Michelle being a uh, a farm mom and, and a wheat producer you know let's get into a conversation about wheat. So You know, I know the past, I mean, it's been for a while, but it seems like the past few years, just the interest in going gluten-free and staying away from bread. And, you know, the thought of actually eating food in moderation somehow has gotten by the wayside. It's like you've got to completely cut stuff out. And so we've seen a lot more uh, (laughs) folks try to cut out bread. Has that impacted demand for the product that you grow on your farm?
1: Uh, It definitely impacts demand. Uh, Domestic consumption of grains has been decreasing for quite a while now, and, and it's an it's unfortunate because it's it's such a healthy part of our diet that you know unless you you have celiac which is you know you actually cannot eat gluten there's really no reason to avoid gluten it's it's part of a healthy diet and and it's unfortunate when um, books and uh, bad science can can lead people to go away from gluten when there's really there's no reason to and it can be a you know a healthy part of your diet and, and really who doesn't like bread
0: oh hello, I'm a huge bread fan. That's why I don't understand it. And I mean, I understand that there are some people that have the disease and cannot eat gluten, um, you know, and and I I completely get that. But there's like this cult following of people that can eat it, but just choose choose not to. And as a a producer, that kind of has to be frustrating because it seems kind of like with gluten-free and all of these labels on things. Um, For example, Michelle, I went to this event and they had bacon and they labeled the bacon as gluten-free.
1: I know. Everything's labeled gluten-free, and and most of it doesn't even have – wouldn't have gluten in it at all. No, it's bacon. It it drives me insane. And we actually go to wheat events for the National Association of Wheat Growers, and, you know, they're big chain hotels, and and you don't have a whole lot of control over the food that they bring you, but we actually had to start specifying that you will not bring us gluten-free snacks.
0: (laughs) Good for you, and when more of us need to step up and say something, because in that line, when they had that gluten-free bacon, I said something to the lady, and I said – I go I didn't even realize bacon had gluten in it, you know, being sarcastic and she goes, "Oh, you didn't?" Really? You know, that's the kind of stuff that that you that you face and that you interact with, but Michelle, you know, how frustrating is that for you as a producer?
1: It's definitely frustrating. You know, especially the people that don't
0: have don't have celiac. I mean, it's
1: just it's it's hard to, you know, Kind of ignore that where you're missing out on demand that and they're missing out on a on a great product on a great food product uh you know there's there's so many foods that that are made from wheat and the different classes of wheat and there's so many options and there's such good options and it, and it's just unfortunate to see domestic demand um not keep up with our export demand and the den- domestic consumption decline.
0: Yeah, and Michelle, it's not just wheat that we're in in, in, in grains that we're seeing um, domestic consumption decline. You know, it's milk, it's other products like that. So when you're at some of these meetings, Michelle, you know, when you're talking with all of these leaders and you're talking to some of these businesses, what's being done to kind of turn the corner and make gluten and make grains and make some of these uh, products? More appealing to consumers again, and 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 grow that hunger.
1: You know, I think U.S. Wheat does a really good job of that sort of stuff. A lot of the outreach and a lot of their focus is export markets for for obvious reasons because so much wheat is exported. But I think they have we have in the industry U.S. Grains Council and um, a few other uh, smaller smaller uh, organizations such as Kansas State or Kansas Kansas Wheat has has started to really focus on domestic demand and growing that domestic brand again and and highlighting the importance of grains in, in a healthy diet.
0: Are you confident? I mean, do you think we can do that? Or do you think, think it's we too late? I think
1: we can do that. You know, I hope that we can do that. The risk is always, you know, whatever other fat, next bad book that comes out yeah. or next bad documentary. Right. But I think that, you know, we're starting to see that in the non-GMO or anti gmo is that there's a lot more positive comments about, Genetically modified um, crops and breeding, and um, I think it's slowly starting to, you know, convert out into the bulk of U.S. consumers, and and it will certainly take time. But I think that I think it's something that you know we'll be able to get done.
0: You know, what are your thoughts on on you know it's something we don't talk about a lot because people don't want to talk about it. But GMO wheat. I mean, I can't help but think, Michelle the accomplishment, accomplishments that we've seen with genetic modification, that maybe we could find a wheat variety that that doesn't trigger some of those reactions with celiac disease. You know, that there could be some research that's being done to help with that. I mean, what? where do you stand on that issue?
1: You know, I really hope that we can get some of that done. Um, in all honesty, it will probably be done through CRISPR um, breeding as yeah. opposed to um, transgenetics But that's still an exciting thing. Um, Exciting avenue for breeders and researchers to look at. I know that they've been doing quite a few studies on developing a uh, non-gluten wheat in uh, Spain, I believe it is, somewhere in Europe. And, um, you know, it's definitely technology that's a little ways off, but I think that it would be a great benefit to the consumer. And and we're kind of hoping that CRISPR, um, because it's not transgenetic for the most part, would um, pick up less public pushback our biggest risk for wheat is because so much is exported and for Montana specifically so much goes to Japan that is really, really reluctant to embrace any form of GM technology. Uh, you know, that's definitely a hurdle that we'll have to keep working on that the state commissions and U S wheat will certainly, certainly keep working on how to approach that when the time comes. But you're right. There's definitely a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities for, different types of wheat to come out of that type of breeding and whether it's even disease resistant Mm -hmm. or um you know more protein content or like you said uh no gluten so it's not harmful to people with celiac disease you know there's a lot of exciting opportunities in wheat breeding
0: and michelle like when you talk about areas of japan you know we saw in canada they found that gmo wheat and then we saw markets like in japan and other areas shut down and would not accept canadian wheat um you know, is it just public perception over there or why is it? I mean, here, you know, we know there's a certain type of crowd that's anti-GMO and we have that. But in, but, in you know, we still allow genetic modification. So why are countries like Japan so against it?
1: You know, I've never really asked what exactly it is, if it's cultural or what it is, because I know if you talk to the Japanese Miller specifically, they'll say, you know, we know that there's nothing different about it, but we just can't, we cannot roll a project, product like that out to our consumers. And so I'm not sure if it's a cultural issue or if it's, you know, just public perception or what the what the exact roadblock is in some of those countries, but uh, Japan and South Korea are very sensitive to it. South Korea also shut down Canadian exports or imports. And they did the same thing with the um, GM wheat discovery in Oregon for soft white wheat a couple of years ago. Um, And it takes them a while to get that, you know, that export market back up and running. And so that's definitely some of the concern and and some of the hurdles that we face in the wheat industry for that type of of product.
0: So, Michelle, as a mom um, and as a female, let's say a Chicago mom came out to your farm to visit just to kind of see what you do. And she said she was gluten-free, um, yet would drink beer and, you know, things like that, but was very selective in, in what she chose to, to eat. Um, not saying that I know someone like that. But anyway, um, w- what would you say to her when she said, you know, oh, I, I, I can't eat this?
1: Well, I think I'd start with asking why, you know, why they why you feel that way. And that's, that's a really tough question for people in agriculture to ask. And even myself, you know, you're automatically defensive of the the or the crops that you raise but i think the most important part is to ask why and try and understand why they feel like that or where they're coming from you know is it just an internet-based article that they read and they decided that they would you know be healthier is it is it something else that you know is a little bit harder to tackle like you know they swear that they feel better without it and that's that's a really difficult one to get around um You know, once you kind of have an idea of the why, you can kind of decide how you're going to approach it, whether it's going to be, you know, education on or a conversation. I don't really like education in that regard, but a conversation about how we produce our wheat and, you know, some of the attributes of our wheat and what happens to it after it leaves the farm. You know, you kind of you really have to know the why for consumers before you can um, start to have a conversation about how we do things or what we produce because without that you're kind of you know you're just preaching at them when they may or may not you know be interested but i would say anyone that comes all the way out to your farm is certainly interested in um in something or learning something or finding out something so so you typically have a chance at a better conversation a better conversation if you approach it that way at least in my experience
0: kind of on a related topic to wrap things up michelle Um, you know, I always like to ask my guests, what advice do you have for other women in agriculture, and especially one like yourself that's juggling a thousand different things a day? I mean, you were bucking hay bales earlier. You're talking about all these things that you're doing um, while being a mom, while being a wife, uh, while being a huge um, advocate for agriculture. So what advice do you have for other women?
1: Um, I think that the advice I have is to, you know, find your passion, whether you're passionate about you know, sharing recipes about sharing recipes on Facebook and how they relate to your farm or if you're passionate about policy, you know, get involved with, you know, any organization, whether it's your local uh, weed organization, Farm Bureau, Farmers Union, you know, it really doesn't matter. There's a, there's a million organizations out there, women and women in egg, and, you know, find what you're really passionate about and then turn that into your ability to um, promote our industry and and certainly uh, women that are wives and mothers have a unique opportunity to access consumers that are wives and mothers that are not on the farm. Mm-hmm. And that that um, that ability is powerful. And if you have the time and, you know, the passion to do that sort of thing, it's it's very valuable to our industry.
0: All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and keep doing what you're doing. It's fun to follow you. What's your Twitter handle on uh, Twitter, in case anyone wants to follow you? Um,
1: Big Sky Farm Her on every platform. Um, Farm Her is like Margie's Farm Her. It has an H in it. Mm
0: -hmm. And then uh, your Facebook, too?
1: Yep, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Snapchat are all Big Sky Farmer. Great. We'll find
0: you on there. Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of No Man's Land. Until next time, be safe out there. Eyes, the way you talking, it's a cheap disguise. We were made
1: to chase the light, but you got to.